Good evening. My name is Kobina Safo. I'm a librarian here at Pratt Library and the assistant manager of the African American Department. We are honored to host Dr. Jared A. Ball and Dr. Stephen Burroughs this evening. Dr. Ball is an associate professor of communication studies at Morgan State University here in Baltimore. His research interests include the interaction between colonialism, mass media theory history, as well as the development of underground journalism and cultural expression as mechanisms of social movements and political organizations. Dr. Ball is also producer and host of the super funky show Power Hour, which airs Fridays from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Washington, D.C.'s WPFW 89.3 FM Pacifica Radio. He is also the, the founder and producer of Free Miss Radio, the original mixtape radio show, an emancipatory journalistic political mixtape about which he published his first book, I Miss What I Like, a mixtape manifesto. He is also co-editor of the recently published A Lie of Reinvention, Correcting Manny Marable's Michael Mess. You can be found online at imisswhatalike.org. Dr. Tad Stevens Burroughs is a lecturer in the Communication Studies Department, also at Morgan State. A professional journalist since 1985, he has written for the Source, Color Lines, Black Issues Book Review, and the Crisis Magazines, websites such as ebony.com, blackamericaweb.com, and Africana.com, now called HuffPost Black Voices, and newspapers such as the New York Amsterdam newspaper chain and New Jersey's largest newspaper, The Star Ledger. He served as an editor, contributing columnist, and a national correspondent for the NNPA News Service, the nation's only newswire for black newspapers. Dr. Burroughs is a co-author contributing columnist and the national correspondent. It's a co-author with Herb Boyd of Civil Rights Yesterday and Today, and co-editor of A Line of Reinvention, Correcting Minor Marables, Malcolm S. And he is writing a journalistic biography of imprisoned journalist, Mumwa Abu-Jamal. I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Ball and Dr. Burroughs this evening to the Inopat Free Library. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, so first of all, it's, a, it's an honor to be here, and I appreciate you all for coming out and uh, the Enoch, Enoch Pratt Library for having us. Um, I'm going to go through just a, a quick version of a longer presentation, and then uh, my colleague is going to say a few words, uh, and then we're going to get right into a Q&A, um, uh, which is, I th always think, the best part of these kinds of talks, uh, to get to some of the issues that, that we wouldn't want to get to. Um, I'll skip through this usually just to ground people in, in my own particular approach. Uh, by the way, I'm Jared Ball. I'm sorry. My colleague Todd Burroughs will be up in a moment. Sorry if I forgive me for that. Um, but I usually just like to put it into a context. I, I like the, the particularly I like the internal colonialism model as applied to black America, uh, where we can bring in some of the theoretical work of people mentioned here like Franz Fanon or Jack O'Dell uh, and many others. But just to sort of put into context that we are in a power struggle. That even as we're talking about a book, uh, a book, uh, you know, in this in this case, a book by Manning Marable, uh, we're talking about the uh, talking about this publication in the context of a power struggle that is ongoing, um, that that is still white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist. It is still in in desperate need of radical and revolutionary response. All of these things are happening, and most of of, of actually every major um, uh, material condition that Malcolm X and others were struggling to get rid of still exists today and in some cases are actually worse, particularly around mass incarceration, uh, um, uh, even long-term unemployment are actually worse today than, than, than when Malcolm X was alive. Um, and then also in this context, uh, that talking about media as weaponry, that media are not just innocuous, benevolent, parts of our life. They are 
uh, as the founders of actually my field of study said themselves, are meant to be mechanisms of social control, mechanisms of, of keeping people in order, uh, uh, keeping people in order through propaganda, uh, setting definitions of the world for them, uh, and even as they said, using media to be an atomic bomb, to have the impact of an atomic bomb without the mess to keep people in line. So I just, it's not just about book publishing and so on and so forth that, that, that we're offering this criticism. Uh, similarly, well, as I said, as Chris Simpson said, media are the fourth arm of the military. Uh, pro propaganda is, is essential to securing ideological victories over enemies, so on and so forth. So I'm just trying to quickly draw this, this rough outline of how I at least uh, approach this kind of discussion. Similarly, uh, Edward Bernays and the famous author Walter Littman both talked about in what they called an invisible government that really runs the world despite giving people the appearance of participation in a democracy and that using stereotype and media and propaganda are essential tools to maintaining all of this uh, beyond people's conscious recognition. Um, so as he said at the beginning of his book, Propaganda, Edward Bernays said, the first line of the book, I believe, it says, you know, Something to the effect people think that they're participating in a democracy when in fact they are living in a world controlled by an invisible government. And the way this invisible government works is in, in part through propaganda and media to give people the illusion of choice and then when all has been predetermined for them um, to lead to, 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 to where we are today with the kind of gross inequality that we have today. So it's in this context that, that uh, Manning Marable's book, A Life of Reinvention, is published. It's in this context that our response is published, A Lie of Reinvention, Correcting Manning Marable's Malcolm X, which we thought was important, A, to be a collective response, as, as one of our contributors, Margot Arnold, talks about the black radical collective consciousness deserved a response to Manning Marable's book. And as we said, more than false, we have, by book title, unapologetically laid down our claim that the reinvention of Manning Marable and Viking Press is, in fact, a lie. It is the carefully constructed, intentional political reshaping of one Malcolm X, who is important a conduit for an exemplar of militant politics as the world has ever seen. Just very quickly, the bases of our challenge, and perhaps during Q&A we can get into some more of these in detail, but just very quickly, poor scholarship, uh, if you look at the citation, the references, the, the attribution of content, it's not, none of it is there, in, 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 or certainly not at a level you would, would expect of a book of this magnitude or of a topic of this seriousness. It's not revelatory. If you read a lot of the other books published about Malcolm X, Manning Marables offers very little that's new and in fact rehashes and retells very old stories, particularly of the assassination uh, and even mo much of the life of Malcolm X in a way that borrows from people's books that he on, that Manning Marable then on page 490 of his own dismisses as having no, no importance. He says all the books written in the 1990s were basically useless. Um, yet he, if you pay attention, you see that he either references them deep in some note somewhere uh, and certainly borrows heavily from them in the content of his book. Uh, it's establishment revisionism and reconciliation with Obama era, with the Obama era or the antithetical negation. Uh, in other words, it's, it's produced by Columbia University and Viking Press, which is one of the uh, uh, subsidiary of Penguin Publishing, one of the biggest publishing houses, one of the biggest six publishing houses in the world. Uh, and it's meant to refashion the book by, book by its end, refashions Malcolm X to be seen as sort of a, a precursor in the lineage of Barack Obama. In other words, making Barack Obama seem natural and part of a continuum that goes from Malcolm X and black power struggles for liberation to what we have now, which uh, I, I find to be disturbing and historically inaccurate and, and as we say here, antithetical, uh, when in fact uh, uh, Obama is the negation of Malcolm X and the politics represented by Malcolm X. He is not at all a continuum. Uh, it's ideological propaganda, psychological warfare that targets black nationalism. It assaults the idea of black nationalism. The book, uh, Manning Marable attacks Pan-Africanism as an ideology. He attacks people like Kwame Nkrumah. He attacks Marxist-Leninism. He attacks anti-imperialist ideology. He attacks the concept of armed struggle. He, he marginalizes women and then women in Malcolm X's life and, and uh, de-emphasizes the state involvement, the state's involvement in Malcolm's assassination, and in fact doesn't even mention the counterintelligence program, which as it says in its own documents, as the FBI said in their own documents, they started the program or refocused it in part to, to attack black America, particularly because of Malcolm X. 
Now, one of the best ways we found to explain what we're trying to say about the book is in a, in a little clip I want to show you from an hour-long presentation from Wendy Wolf, the, the, the editor who worked with Manning Marable. And I think in this seven minutes, if you'll bear with us, you'll see, uh, it'll help you see some of the problems that we have with the book. And I was, I was only upset that I didn't find this video until after we had gone to press. I would have loved to have seen this before we had gone to press with our own book, because I think it says a lot of what uh, we are trying to say in criticism of what Marable has done. So I want to play this clip for you, and then I'll wrap up, and then I'll bring up my colleague. Talk to you this afternoon. I am Wendy Wolf, as billed, um, and it was my good fortune to be Manning Marable's editor, his publisher, his admirer, and his friend for most of the last 10 years as my colleagues and I at Viking collaborated with him on the completion of his monumental project, indeed his life's work, which resulted in this book, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. I'm not a scholar, and it's been a long, long time since I sat in a classroom. I have been an editor my entire adult life, so I know a little bit about many, many things and not too much about any one thing. And generally, they tell me to talk for 45 seconds about my books, so this is an opportunity that I, am, I welcome. I am flattered and more than a little alarmed to find myself here, and I hope I can give you a small sense of what this book and its subject and its author meant to me, how it came to be, what kind of impact it's had, and most of all, why both Malcolm X and Manning Marable matter today. We all bring our own histories to, to the books we read, or in the case of being an editor, to the books we help into the world. I grew up in the segregated South in the 50s and 60s, so I came to Malcolm with more than an academic interest in the negotiation of race relations. I came to this project as someone who thought they knew Malcolm X because, of course, in high school I'd read the autobiography. And I thought I pretty much had the line on Malcolm. To be honest, when I read the autobiography, as a teenager, I thought he was one scary dude. He represented a kind of anger, of violence, and extremism that as a kid in a nice liberal integrationist family, I found pretty threatening. In the New York Times book review, review of Malcolm X, uh, the African-American uh, commentator Touré said, and I'm quoting here and here, Malcolm got under your skin, whether he seeped into your pores and transformed the way you felt like a great love does, or he scared the living hell out of you. Well, I was in the latter category. It was like he was an alien arriving from the planet Xenon to live among us and scared the pants off good progressives like me. I don't think I actually got all the way to the end of the book, and I had a lot to learn. And when Manning Marable first walked into my office in about 2004, I knew that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to tackle the enigma of Malcolm X. We could easily have called it a life of education, the self-education of a man who walked out of his last classroom at 14, but who soaked up ideas and principles and visions for the next 25 years with a thirsty brain and a huge heart. He clearly had an, Malcolm clearly had an extraordinary kind of native intelligence. And he was never stopped taking in new ideas. And just as importantly, he was not afraid to discard the old ones when they betrayed him or they turned out just simply to be wrong. Malcolm was a profoundly American figure in his ability to remake himself and in his belief that we could remake society. We also could have called it simply a life of evolution, for he was always evolving, always testing philosophy against experience, what I call taking it out for a walk, taking his ideology out for a walk and trying to map it out against what he saw. So where did he look for this agency of change in America to the black community itself? And I think that is the biggest thing that stands between Malcolm and Martin Luther King, the question of whether blacks could look to whites for any kind of solution. But in terms of what Manning thinks, of what Manning thought Malcolm's legacy was, uh, you'll forgive me if I just let Manning speak for himself, and I read you a few passages. Um, this is at the very end of the book when he's talking about al-Qaeda embracing uh, Malcolm as an icon. What is truly ironic is that Malcolm would certainly have condemned the terrorist attacks on September 11th as representing the negation of Islam's core tenets, a religion based on universal compassion and respect for the teachings of the Torah and the Gospels, Malcolm would have known, holds no common ground with those who employ terror as a tool for politics. 
Malcolm's personal journey of self-discovery, the quest for God, led him toward peace and away from violence. A deep respect for and belief in black humanity was the heart of this revolutionary visionary's faith. And as his social vision expanded to include people of divergent nationalities and racial identities, his gentle humanism and anti-racism could have become a platform for a new kind of radical global ethnic politics. Instead of the fiery symbol of ethnic violence and religious hatred, as Al-Qaeda might project him, Malcolm X should become a representative for hope and human dignity. At least for for the African-American people, He's already come to embody these loftier aspirations. Malcolm X and Manning Marable were very different men. One was a street fighter propelled for most of his life by anger, the other a scholar brimming with hope. But they were united in their ceaseless efforts on behalf of racial equality, human rights, and social justice. Uh, Good afternoon. I was at a um, seminar during the summer at the Woodson Library in Chicago were in some of the black uh, professors of some of the black studies in some of the universities and colleges, made this comment that in the title, uh, a life of reinvention, rather than using evolution, metamorphosis, or redemption, they, they really objected to that. And I think you sort of t- touched on that, because sometimes you can think people reinvent themselves for their own benefit or, or whatever. But uh, the thing that I have the most problem with is the research about, I mean, I don't care whether Malcolm X, uh, you know, had this affair with this man or not. I like James Baldwin and other people, and that's, that's not important to me. But I don't think the research that is presented in the bibliography in the book or in the book really substantiates that. And that, that is a problem. And because it's like, well, his sister, stepsister said this, and her son said this. Recently, somebody told me that somebody told them I was married to a Caucasian man, which is not true. So people are always here saying and saying, and I don't think that the research really rose above that. Because when I checked the bibliography, it says check to something else in um, the autobiography. So I think, I think that's a weakness uh, in the book. And uh, you might want to take a look at that. Other than that, I agree uh, with those who have said that uh, the book gives us so much more insight so many years later into Malcolm X, especially through the uh, use of of the diaries. And there is a response to this book. It's called By Any Means Necessary. It's published by uh, Third World Press in Chicago. Thank you. Okay. I know I faded it out right there, but please, well, actually, don't take my word for it. I encourage you to go to YouTube and watch the whole thing. Uh, But you'll notice that Wendy Wolf has literally no response for this woman. And I think this is in many ways indicative of uh, some of the problems with Marable's book. Um, In part, what you get from, you know, Wendy said plenty. Uh, she starts off by saying she's not an expert, but defines Manning Marable and, and as she says, the cultural critic uh, Teray as experts, uh, which is, you know, uh, again, a highly dubious claim coming from a non-expert herself. Um, her experience is one of fear of, of, of Malcolm and what he represents. Then this is at the center of his, her interpretation of him and his history. Uh, her liberal tendencies were appeased by Marable's rendition of Malcolm X. I think this is essential to understanding what was done to the book, uh, to Malcolm X, uh, with great nuance and skill, even uh, by Marable. Um, her reference to Malcolm's native intelligence evinces her inability to know, interpret, or appreciate the radical traditions impacting Malcolm X or his application of those traditions. She credits Malcolm's transformation to the very state apparatus he was looking to dismantle. She literally appropriates his revolution, the kind of, you know, kind of Don Kingian thing. You know, only in America could you be so oppressed and then be so radical and be so loved after you've been killed by us. You know, after we kill you, we can reinvent you into somebody who was worthy of our love. Um, she disrespects the manifestation of the black radical collective consciousness in the visage of this elder sister and cannot muster any response at all. 
She concludes with Marable's conclusion of Malcolm that is consistent with her own views, hence her use of we in reference to the writing, uh, which is as frequent as Marable's use of maybe, probably, and might have in his recitation of what he calls uh, uh, um, uh, evidence. Uh, but if you watch the whole video, she talks about we and talks about how we collaborated to create this book and we worked closely with Manning Marable and we, we, we. And it gets to the point where you actually wonder, particularly in, in light of Manning Marable's long career, how much he actually was involved with the final version of the book. Um, I'll stop there other than to just quickly say that like most of the contributors to our book and we have a lot of we have we have people who worked with Malcolm. We have people who who were of his age and his in, in, in his time who worked with him, organized with him. We have people who came up after him who were a part of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. We have people who were who were at one point uh, legal representation from one of the accused killers of Malcolm X. We have men. We have when we have a nice coterie of, of, of folks who have come together to represent, again, as Margot Arnold says in our book, the black radical collective consciousness, which has been assaulted by Manning Marable and Viking Press, in part to make the point that Malcolm has to be uh, uh, defended in, in defended to this day, and particularly not only Malcolm himself, but the ideas that he struggled with, because as people start to pick up again the need for radical political organization in light of whether it's the Occupy movement or any of the other issues we're still struggling with, mass incarceration, unemployment, police brutality, and so on, um, they, we have to be discouraged from picking up what, what Malcolm X was actually advocating, from the ideas he was actually struggling with, some of which I listed there. Those ideas are meant to be dismissed forever. And when people come back to say, hey, what are we going to do about these things, they must not pick up the real Malcolm X, uh, or the real Dr. King, for that matter. She distorted him as well in there uh, uh, also. But I'll stop there. I'm going to let my colleague come up, and then we'll get to Q&A. Again, thank you very much. And if it's not too much trouble, you can lift the, uh, the screen and kill the projector. I think we can take it from there. Thank you very much. Go ahead. All right. Good evening, everyone. Hello. My name is uh, Todd Stephen Burroughs, and uh, I'm very happy to follow that excellent presentation by Dr. Jared Ball, my colleague and comrade, because now I can go in a completely different direction. What I'd like to talk about is Manning Marable and give my view of how this book was put together and the problems with this book and really talk about the tragedy that is this book, because this book is a tragedy. Um, the last thing that I wanted to do was attack Manning Marable. Manning Marable was a hero of mine because we share a very important bond. We were both writers in the black press, columnists. It was my honor to start my career at the Afro-American, the New Jersey Afro-American. And when I had the honor of, in the 1990s, becoming a columnist for black newspapers nationwide, I knew I had arrived because I had appeared on the same page as people like Ben Chavis, as people like uh, Marion Wright Edelman, and Manning Marable. So the last thing I wanted to do when I found out that Manning Marable was coming out with a biography of Malcolm X, and I rushed in the dead of night, basically, to uh, a Washington, D.C. bookstore to grab one of the two copies they had left and just cut off uh, the telephone for four days and read this book from cover to cover. The very last thing I wanted to do was attack him. But attack him, we must. He failed seriously, deeply, and he knew better, which makes this more painful. Manning Marable was one of the top scholars of African-American politics in the United States. He was no stranger to biography. His political biography of W.E.B. Du Bois got praise as an incredible book by Du Bois's main biographer, David Levering Lewis. So Manning Marable, who wrote about 27 books in his very long career, uh, had to end on this tragedy, which, which makes it even more sad. Now, I'm going to approach Manning Marable this way. 
I am allegedly a biographer of death row journalist and now in prison journalist Mumia Boujamal for several years. I'm getting to the book one day. So I do know that there are some rules of biography. I'm going to list four. First, you over-research. Then you go where the subject went. You interview everyone. And you separate your views from your subject's views. Manning Marable broke every rule of biography listed here for this Malcolm X book. Now, we have to ask why. Manning Marable was ill while he was writing this book. He had some assistants. He had 26, I believe, graduate assistants because he was part of this Institute of African American Studies at Columbia University. His original charge was to produce a multimedia website about Malcolm X, and that evolved into the 26 uh, graduate assistants being his research assistants for this biography of Malcolm X. A biography, I want to add, that was originally supposed to be a political biography. So he started with the idea of doing a political biography in which you do much less research and do more interpretive analysis. And somehow it went from being a political biography in which no major publisher would give you a major advance to all of a sudden morphing into a major biography in which the publisher gave him a major advance. Now, I can't tell you any motives. I can only tell you the result. The result is, is that he got a major contract to do a book that clearly, because of his health, he was not able to do. The last year of his life was spent uh, attached to an iron lung. And in the book, very sadly, in the acknowledgments, he talks about his full recovery. And he thanks his doctors for the full recovery that he's made. And this is really sad, reading this from a dead man. So there, there were some problems. But our first loyalty must be to history, not to any historical subject, and not to any historian, and definitely not to any biographer who has made such mistakes. So let's talk about this book from these four rules. Again, the first rule is you over-research. Manning Marable under-researched. If you look through the notes, you'll see that he quotes only four books over and over and over and over and over again. One of those books is the autobiography. One of those books is Peter Goldman's The Death and Life of Malcolm X. There is a, a religious scholar, uh, I think his last name is DeCaro, who Manning Marable quotes. So the same references pop up again and again and again throughout the book. Go to where the subject went. Malcolm X was an international figure. He traveled to Africa, traveled to Saudi Arabia and the Muslim world many times, not just that one time that we all know about. He had gone several times before then. That's one of the parts of the history that is not stressed about Malcolm. There is no piece of evidence that shows that Manning Marable or any of the 26 research assistants went anywhere outside of the United States to interview anybody about Malcolm X. Rule number three, interview everyone. A major biography of a major world figure requires, at minimum, 100 to 200 interviews. Now, there are people who have the resources that can go well beyond that. If you look at Robert Carroll, who's done these amazing books on Lyndon Baines Johnson, he spent 40 years writing about Lyndon Baines Johnson, he has interviewed thousands and tens of thousands of people. Taylor Branch, who's done major work on Martin Luther King, although I have some problems with Taylor Branch, it still needs to be said that he interviewed thousands of people for that three-volume biography. Manning Marable, according to Raymond Bush, Raymond Wimbush, one of our contributors, interviewed less than 18 people for this book. He did not interview Betty Shabazz for this book. I want to give you an idea of the horror that I went through understanding what I was about to do. When I looked in the back of the book, 
because I was taught by a historian that historians start at the back of the book. They start with the notes. They, they want to see where the, the author's getting their information from, and they want to see how thorough the research is. So you can imagine the horror that I was going through in the four days of reading this book because I understood what my responsibility was going to have to be. Rule number four, separate your views from your subjects. Manny Marable started out as a radical, as a radical socialist, who then very slowly morphed into a political progressive. And I can say that with some authority, being that for uh, a presentation I did on Manny Marable, I read basically 3,000 of his newspaper columns in chronological order. So I watched the political progression. Manning Marable had a progressive ideology that he attempted to attach to Malcolm X in this book. Now, we don't know what Malcolm X would have supported and what he would not have in 2013. We can only go by what he was supporting in 1965. In 1965, he was much more radical than Manning Marable portrays him. And Manning Marable even goes the extra step of critiquing some of Malcolm's views on things like the March on Washington. Uh, Manning Marable uh, says that Malcolm X got the basic facts of how the March on Washington was put together uh, wrong. He got those facts wrong. And you know, that, that came uh, as news to me. And I think it also came, the news, uh, it, it came as news to Howard Zinn who, if you read his book, A People's History of the United States, Howard Zinn outlines how the March on Washington was put together by white liberals, for white liberals, and essentially validates, as if Malcolm X needed to be validated, every single statement Malcolm made about the March on Washington. So when you get to the point where you start interpreting your subject without any of that background research, you then know that there's a problem. So Jared and I took to his radio show, and we talked about this. And Paul Coates, our publisher, who's here tonight, Paul Coates, a uh, former Black Panther and a publisher of Black Classic Press, one of the two major black publishing houses in the United States, approached Jared and said, we need to do a response. Jared is always dragging me into things. So Jared said to me, come on, Todd, help me with this. Let's do it. I said, great. And so uh, Paul Coates and uh, his great assistant, Natalie Stokes, and Jared and I all got on each other's nerves for an entire year. And this is our result. Black people are losing their memory. And all of the technology that we have is not assisting us. We have technology in which we can archive everything. But if you don't know what you're searching for, if you don't have a foundation, if your tree has no root, it doesn't matter if there is water and air nearby if you don't know how to identify it. This Manning Marable biography, unfortunately, has pushed Malcolm X's memory into arenas that it doesn't belong. So we had to make a stand. We're happy that we made this stand. We thank Paul. We thank Black Classic Press. And we thank you for being here. And we look forward to talking to you. So we, And I think you see why my first call was to him. <laughs> I think that for the purposes of the podcast, they'd like questions to come from the mic here so you can be recorded and heard. Um, so whoever would like to go first, please make your way to the mic. Anybody? Yeah, I just want to uh, maybe perhaps clarify um, at, least, um, at least one point. Um, the uh, research that uh, Manning claims that he did also encompassed him having access uh, 
to files under the control of Minister Farrakhan, and that Farrakhan gave him X amount of time to look the files over, and then that was it. Um, I didn't read uh, Marble's entire book. I got a little bit disgusted in the first part. But in terms of the materials that he looked at in Farrakhan's uh, collection, which I don't understand why Farrakhan even has that, can you comment on how that was used in the book? Um, I, I'll, I'll just go first very quickly. I cannot, only in that I'm not aware of these files at all. The files I'm aware of were the, the supposed missing chapters that uh, from Malcolm's autobiography that Marable, that are in the possession of lawyer Gregory Reed in Detroit, um, where there was some controversy, and depending on who you believe or what, what public statements you, you, you have access to, um, Marable claims that he struggled very mightily to reach Gregory Reed and to arrange a time to see these chapters and was given 15 minutes. Uh, to look them over, and then that was basically it. Reed, in an account to me directly, says that this is not true, that he chased Marable down and only caught him uh, uh, briefly while Marable was visiting for another conference for another reason. Um, and while he never put any time limit on it, uh, Marable concluded he didn't need to look at them more than 15 minutes and found no no need no use for them. Um, so I'm not aware of the files, that, you know, but but you know. I, I think what you're talking about is the um, interview rules that the minister gave, that the minister decided that uh, to, to be interviewed by Marable and that he opened up his files, the right. Nation of Islam's files. Okay, I, I know what you're referring to. It's it's in um, some of the acknowledgments in which, in which that's discussed. I don't know what Manning Marable got to see, but... Again, I, I, I can't deal with motive, I can't deal with conjecture, I can only deal with results. So let's look at the results. Minister Farrakhan is treated in that book as a, a tragic figure who witnessed all of this turmoil around Malcolm X and who could do nothing. Now, that's interesting because we know that Minister Farrakhan has made a variety of statements about the murder of Malcolm X including one very famous one in which he talked about, we dealt with him the way a nation deals with our traitors. We also know that if the FBI files are to be believed, that the killers of Malcolm X came out of the Newark and Patterson Mosque, and that according to Peter Goldman's book, and I've never seen this refuted, Minister Farrakhan was at the Newark Mosque on the day of the assassination. I don't know what he shared with Manny Marable, but I believe, and I think my colleague believes, that, that uh, the minister got very light treatment from Manning Marable for whatever reason. And so we don't know what he had access to because he doesn't cite, in all of those footnotes, he doesn't cite the papers he had access to. If he had cited those papers and those papers were open to the public, maybe we would know. But it seems that he depends on Farrakhan's memory and does not even challenge Farrakhan in terms of the memory that he's laid down. Okay. There's just one other point I want to make. Prior, um, there was an article in Legacy magazine when uh, Marable first set up the research team for his book. In that article, Manny made the statement that he intended to rewrite the autobiography of Malcolm X. That sounds to me like there was already a conspiracy afoot to, to create another Malcolm that was more acceptable to the power structure. Do you have any comments on that? Well, let me, let me say this. Sometimes I'm in the minority on this. I'm a historian, so again, my first loyalty is to history, not to any subject, not to any, any uh, historian. What we're going to have to deal with is the fact that the autobiography is a piece of literature that had a propaganda purpose. The first idea, because remember, the autobiography comes out of the Playboy interview. Right? We owe Playboy magazine for the autobiography of Malcolm X, because Alex Haley interviewed Malcolm X for Playboy. Right. So coming out of the Playboy interview, Malcolm first thought that the idea behind the autobiography was to show the greatness of Elijah Muhammad. Now, Alex Haley, 
the liberal Republican freelance writer, hustler, all right, and I use that in a positive sense. I used to be a freelance writer, all right? They hustle, that's a hustle. Started making money. All right, trying to make money. Yeah. Haley had this view of Malcolm X that took out a lot of the political content and the content of religion, hence the missing chapters that my colleague is talking about. So when a historian says I'm going to rewrite the autobiography, I think, giving Manny Marable the benefit of the doubt, I think that what he means is that he's going to go and do a biography that's going to make the autobiography the work of literature that we know it is. People love the autobiography. They view it as a sacred text. I understand that. So do I. But as a historian, I have to ask about facts, and I have to ask about interpretation. And I think there's a need for biographies to uh, counter autobiographies. Because people who write autobiographies, they tend to shade the truth. They tend to shape it. They tend to lie. And keep in mind, using uh, current nonfiction literary standards, that is now encouraged. Everyone now makes up composite characters. Barack Obama made up composite characters in Dreams from My Father. Everyone does this now. Everyone shapes that uh, autobiographical experience into a narrative. So I don't view it as so much as a conspiracy as I view it as Manning Marable had a tremendous opportunity to build on the work of many people, and he really messed it up. I would like to go a little bit past that, only to say that I, I that um, how did you just phrase it? You don't see it as did you say you don't see it as a conspiracy? Yeah, I, I see it as a conspiracy. And you know, to just be fair, I believe all conspiracies. I'm, I'm prone to believe all of them. You know, and 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 as I heard from Ishmael Reed, if you want to call me a conspiracy theorist, you have to first acknowledge yourself as a coincidence theorist. So. Um, but again, but I, but I can't prove it other than by what my colleague is saying by looking at the outcome. So it is important to note that, that Marable uh, and Viking Press, and I want to keep saying it that way, that, that Viking Press and Marable, not, this is not just a Manning Marable book, and I think Wendy Wolf goes far beyond even what she would have intended uh, in admitting that. Um, but what they, what they set out to do was to, as they said, make this book, A Life of Reinvention, the definitive replacement of the autobiography. And as one of our contributors, Kamau Franklin, points out, I believe is Kamau points this out, that that uh, when you finish reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, one of the problems that the established order of you know power structure in this country has had and the world has had is that when many people read the autobiography, they became revolutionary, they became radical, they became angry and frustrated and willing to act on that anger. Uh, and though, though she and Manning Marable dismiss anger. Uh, as an immature emotion, I disagree. And as Malcolm said, you know, you, you know, um, people don't do anything until they're angry. You, you have to get angry. And how could you look at this world and not be angry? Uh, I think anger is an underappreciated emotion. We should be much more angry than we are. Um, and this is what the autobiography tapped into. Uh, when you read this book, the Marable book, what you get is, is again, if you, if you particularly by reading the epilogue where it's made very clear what is the political purpose of this book, you get a version, you start to realize what had been done the previous 600 pages, which is to turn Malcolm X into more of a Democratic Party liberal, uh, as they say, race neutral in his pan-Africanism and anti-imperialism to the extent they even give him credit for being an anti-imperialist by the end. They dismiss Nkrumah and the anti-imperialist wing that was that was influencing Malcolm without without substance. They just passingly hit hit job on it. But the point is, is to create a book that, as they said, um, uh, as I think uh, William Strickland, another one of our contributors, says that becomes a book that becomes sub, uh, submitted to the to the to the to the pressures of a of a market strategy or something to that effect. That if you want to have a, a Washington Post or New York Times bestseller about Malcolm X, you have to write about him in a way that makes him palatable, that makes him safe, that makes the Wendy Wolves not afraid. Um, so that they don't fear that they are contributing to a radicalization of a new generation. Uh, and this is what is done. So by replacing, and again, so by attacking the autobiography, which is what you would have to do if you need, to, if you intend to replace it as the definitive text, he does so throughout the book, but does so with without any substance. My comrade is right here. If you're going, you know, a, criti a critique of autobiography is important. 
But you have to do it with historical uh, on a historical basis, with evidence. And if you read Marable's book, you will be amazed at the amount of time he says maybe and probably and could have and might have and circumstantial evidence suggests and this and that. And then just leaves and, and then we'll conclude with wild speculation from everything from Malcolm's homosexuality to his infidelity with an 18 year old young woman uh, simply by saying she could have showed up at his hotel room. Well, I mean, what is that? I mean, who knows who could be waiting for me when I get home tonight? But that's that's irrelevant. That's not that's not that's that's, so anyway, you but but so when you see what is done and with the the, the low level of citation and evidence and then the, the, the horrifically low amount of interviews. I mean, for our master's theses and dissertations, we interviewed far more than 18 to 26 people or whatever the, the, the final count was. Uh, but this is this is what I think had, had to be done to, to replace the autobiography, which still radicalizes people to this day, with something that, oh, here, read about Malcolm and then conclude that you can vote for Obama and that's the extent of your radical activity that's necessary. You know, anyway. I, I just had one more. If people don't mind. I don't see a line. I'm, you, I don't, I don't, yeah, know. I, just, no, I, I look behind me too. Um, uh, you mentioned Viking Press, and I, and I just want to get a clarification here. Originally, Columbia University provided the, the money for Marble to bring together the team and to do the research. Now, was the final product, the manuscript, was that the product, was it owned by Columbia and they sold it to Viking or Viking owned the property from the beginning? That, as far as I know, Viking would have owned the, 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 would have in a signed contract owned the final product long before it was completed. And Wendy Wolf wouldn't have worked so, so diligently with him had they not had proper proprietary ownership of the final product. So I've not seen anything that suggests that Columbia University had any uh, hold over what was to be this book. Um, they did provide him a house from which to do research. They provided him with research assistance. But I would encourage, you know, I have to be careful what I say about this publicly, but I would encourage people to the extent that they're interested and able to follow up with his claimed research team and ask what was their level of involvement. Because there are some contradictory messages that are coming out from we were his research team to we had nothing to do with the research to we're, we're still being asked to give paid speaking engagements on behalf of Marable. There's a lot of really contradictory things happening here. I will say this. I contacted Zahir Ali, as, as Todd said during our radio program, Zahir Ali is said to be his chief researcher. Right. I contacted Zahir Ali uh, shortly after the book was published and told him, I do a radio program, I have some issues with the book, but I want you and your entire research team to come on my show and I will provide you with every detailed question I intend to ask weeks in advance so that you all are prepared to answer my questions. Because much like Todd was saying, I was shocked by what I was reading and I wanted some clarification. Uh, he refused to come on the program and has since even backed out of paid uh, events where he and I would have been situated against one another. Um, so we've not able to, been able to publicly get this clear. So I would just encourage people to, as they would like, to, to contact him and find out what was your relationship to this book? What is your research team's response to the now two collections of books that have come out criticizing this book? Uh, and, and see what he says. My question is, uh, I noticed in your intro that you said that there was no mention in the Manning book about COINTELPRO. And uh, that being the case, my question is, uh, I assume that there's very little mention of FBI or CIA involvement as well in uh, surveillance of, of Malcolm and uh, conspiracy in his death. Uh, who does Manning exactly blame or hold responsible for Malcolm's death? Well, let me just say very quickly that um, he does talk about the FBI. He does mention, uh, to a certain extent, the CIA, at least a little bit, and he does talk a little bit about Bossy, the, the New York Police Department Bureau of Special, uh, special, special, special Services and Investigations, something to that effect. But, but when you read, again, with skill and nuance, I mean, Marable was, was quite a, a, you know, a competent writer. Um, but when you finish the book, what you read, what you conclude, or I would argue you conclude, and our, some of our contributors suggest the same thing. In fact, Mumia Abu-Jamal calls it tragic that COINTELPRO wasn't mentioned. Um, you not only lose the, the, the sort of political context in which Malcolm was operating and becoming a threat, but all, a threat to, but also uh, the FBI and these intelligence agencies read as sort of background 
um, you know, distant observers as, as opposed to, you know, intricately involved actors in developing what would become the assassination. Uh, so so um, by by leaving out the phrase COINTELPRO or counterintelligence program, it allows him to e more easily diminish the FBI's role in the assassination. And then he more or less follows what Zach Kondo says. Uh, in fact, Zach Kondo also contributes to our book says that, you know, I have many problems with what Marable did, except for when he talks about the assassination, because he basically just takes what I've said 20 years ago without giving me proper attribution. So saying that there was basically a co coming together of the FBI, the Nation of Islam, the New York City Police Department. Um, and though though he, Marable does not go as far as Kondo does into to bringing in what the state's benefit would have been. In fact, he says Farrakhan would have been the biggest beneficiary to the assassination. Um, which is absurd given what the United States government benefited and what international capitalism and imperialism benefited from in terms of the assassination. To say that Farrakhan benefited more than anybody denies, again, the state's involvement. It diminishes the state's involvement in a way that I think is dangerous and anti-historical given all the evidence that we now have. And uh, the other thing that uh, my colleague didn't mention was that Marable also uh, fingers a uh, resident of New Jersey by name uh, as being one of the assassins. And that uh, was some very tricky, you know, uh, uh, thing to do. But I mean, he was building that case on other scholarship. And again, uh, what Dr. Paul keeps talking about is that Marable claims on, what's the page, 400 something? 490 that, you know, most of the books written on, on Malcolm X in the 1990s were, I think the direct quote is, of shallow character, something, something in that effect. But this is the material that he keeps going back to to flesh out his narrative because he hasn't done his own research and interviews. But you only know that if you've read this other literature. And he's counting, I think they're counting on the fact that this may be many people's first foray into this work. Right. Yeah. Good evening. Good Thank evening. you so much for this discussion. My question is, how did you determine the people that you would use for to collaborate with you on this book? Yeah, that, that was a little tricky. Um, it was tricky in the sense that, that, that uh, and I don't mean to disparage our, our, our um, sort of competitor critical book uh, from Third World Press, but uh, one of the things that we wanted to make sure of was that we were only dealing with Marable's book. We weren't trying to deal with people's full personal reflection on Malcolm X or you know anything. We wanted people who had actually read Marable's 600 plus page book and who were critical of it. So one of the criticisms we've gotten uh, from some friends in, in response to us using the Wendy Wolf piece is that they're saying, well, she just did what any publisher does. She just did what even Paul Coates did with us. Um, and I more or less agree, except that we are open about our political perspective and position in all of this, that we're saying this is we are not trying to be falsely objective. We are critical based on these criteria. Uh, and this is what we're saying, unlike trying to say we are writing the unquestioned, definitive, objective, whatever. Um, so we, we said we had to have you have to have read the book and you have to have a critical perspective on the book. And then you have to meet a certain deadline. So all of those things end up you know, encouraging some, weeding some out. Uh, but that's basically, we, we approached some, we put out somewhat of a public call in another sense, and then just invited people to meet some of these deadlines that, that we were very friendly with. And this is who we ended up with. Uh, and at the end, I think, though, uh, uh, again, obviously bias uh, aside, uh, you know, to the extent that that's possible, I think we've done a great job. The, the contributors that we have, again, are a nice wide array, both in terms of generation, uh, um, and even within certain political perspectives from the left. I mean, there's not like this full unified monolithic uh, viewpoint here. And I think that we've got a very solid book in terms of what we've done. Like, they're very specific in our criticism, well-researched, very well-edited. We took our time with this thing. We, we gave it the, the respect that Malcolm and these ideas deserve. And I'm, I'm very proud of, of what we've done here and am willing to stand against anybody on this. You know, and that's why I keep saying we challenge whoever. And I've challenged personally, maybe, maybe even inappropriately, uh, some of the people who defend Marable's book to speak to us publicly and invite us to their events publicly. And, and as yet, as far as, far as I know, none, none has come. No question. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I want to mention is that the only time that we have seen uh, Zaire Ali uh, 
answer any criticism of Malcolm's book face-to-face -face was with both of us on Al Jazeera. So if you want to go on YouTube and type in uh, Riz Khan, R-I-Z-K-H-A-N, it was the last week of his talk show, and Zaire and uh, Jared and I are there. And it's only the three of us debating because Zaire Ali was not told that we were going to be there. Didn't even want to share the green room with us. That's right. He didn't even see us before. He would not sit with us until we were actually out in front of the camera. So there was no. And the only the only exchange we had after the show, I'm I'm I, we have to talk about off the record. I can't. Very frustrating, but I can't I can't say because it would be seen as maybe you know a problem for us. But 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 uh, yeah, but he didn't intend to be there. He didn't know he, we were going to be there. Uh, the producer told us that she basically had to finagle this and that he was not happy. And we really even then didn't get to get into everything. So, you know. Yes, sir. Um, I've got a couple things. Uh, one, it seems strange to me, and maybe I'm being a conspiracy theorist a little bit, but Malcolm X is never put in the same group as Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy, and Martin Luther King being assassinated, though they were assassinated very close together. It's almost like it's different. Oh, that was just something that happened. They all happened around the same time. I mean, isn't that a little strange, you know? Um, the other thing is, coming from the Midwest, uh, I hate debating in the Midwest because we don't debate because we try to flatten everything. So, like, if I have a problem with my family, they'll say, I voted for Mike Huckabee, uh, but we're all the same in the end. That's the way we always <laughs> end it, you know? But we all want the same things. and. What I got from her when she said she was scared after reading Malcolm X, when I read it in high school, it blew my mind. And when I came away from it, I didn't think, oh, he's just like everyone else. I thought, wow, I can never look at the world the same way. And I don't necessarily trust everything anymore. It wasn't, uh, oh, everything's the same and it's a Hallmark moment or something. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think... I like what you're saying about this book because when I came away from it, I didn't. I felt a little bit like maybe Malcolm X wasn't as great as I thought he was, or something. Like it, it tended to flatten it out. Like it's just another. It gets into this this thing. Like like she was saying, she's a progressive, right? She doesn't have to say that she has a motivation behind her. She's just expressing what we all really believe in the mainstream rational way of looking mm -hmm. at things and that's propaganda at the base of how the media works you that's know, what the media does it flattens it yeah no first of all I would I would say that Malcolm X and the ideas with which he was struggling are greater than even you would have thought at the height of him like he was even better than that um, but it's interesting you you mentioned this I just I just I'm late to this book but there's a book called assassinations by uh, D Eugenio and Lisa Pierce that does do exactly what you're talking about in terms of talking about the assassinations of King, Malcolm, and the Kennedys, and showing how there is a continuum of even individuals involved in these assassinations, um, and puts them all together. And I bring that up because after our book came out, I'm late to this, but I noticed another thing that is done, um, uh, that Marable does, that, that, that speaks to our point. In the D. Eugenio and Pierce book, uh, they talk about this incident where Malcolm goes throughout Africa and tries to work with African leadership to get them to be on board with what is happening here and to bring the case of, of Africans here to the United Nations. Um, he's not entirely successful in having them in a unified fashion do that. In the D. Eugenio and Pierce book, they make, make reference to this as this was evidence of what Malcolm was moving toward and the impact he was slowly beginning to have and the threat that this posed to United States and Western imperial powers. In Marable's book, this same incident is recounted but simply dismissed as a failure of Malcolm X. And this is the kind of sleight of hand that I'm, I'm talking about here that you really have to pay close attention to when reading this and many other books for that matter uh, and trying to catch some of these things. Uh, one other thing very quickly is that they talk about the firebombing of his home where um, it was shown that a Molotov cocktail had been put undetonated, so to speak, on Malcolm's bureau in his bedroom, his dresser drawer in his bedroom. In the D. Eugenio and Pierce book, they recount 
uh, talking to a, a black firefighter who was who would have been there named Canty, who says that there could have on, this could have only been put there by people wearing a firefighter or police uniform, meaning that there was government involvement in this firebombing. But in Marable's book, they don't they don't interview Canty, they don't mention this, and only talk about this incident as being evidence that that Malcolm set the fire himself to get you know to get more press coverage. This popular idea that he would. Th- you know, risk burning down his entire house and his children just to get press coverage. Um, so this is the kind of, again, the sleight of hand that Marable and his crew in, engage. Uh, and because they don't talk about COINTELPRO and they don't talk about the full threat that Malcolm posed to the state, they can't make these connections to, to, to King or the Kennedy's assassinations at all, as these other books, uh, or at least as one other book has done. <clears throat> Paul Coates. Um, I've got two comments, three comments actually, quickly. Um, The first one is I really, really want everyone here and everyone listening to this podcast to know how proud I am to work with you guys. You know? And I don't mean proud. I don't mean proud because you guys are nice and stuff like that. (laughs) But I I mean proud in the sense that we've published books for 35 years. And Black Classic Press, Third World Press, and the other presses came out of struggle and put ourselves out there as a voice for our community. When I contacted Jared, when I when Jared contacted and brought Todd in, it was so that our community would have voice. Didn't matter that it was Manny Marable didn't matter that it was Viking Press. It mattered that someone had published something that assaulted our community, that assaulted our memory, that assaulted our interpretation of history. And what are we going to do about that? You know, what are we going to do about that? You guys responded. And that's what I mean by proud. You guys responded and you guys put together a collective of people that responded to that assault. And no one, no one, no one can ever say that we did not respond to that assault. We didn't give favor to Manny Marable because he's black, because he is supposedly an acknowledged academic. You guys attacked, and you went to the heart of where the problems, where the many, many problems where this book, that this book has. That's why I'm proud of you. And I'm proud to be in this room and associated with uh, the presentation that you did tonight. Jared, I just want to, I do want to comment on something from a publisher's perspective. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to you, but I'm saying it to everyone in the room. We're very, very fortunate because of the internet. So we have a, a, a long record of not only this interview, but Wendy Wolf has done a number of interviews in which she has spoken of her relationship to this book. And, and there is a difference. Yes, publishers get involved, editors get involved, and they try to um, help shape the book. But as you guys know, anything that the editor, anything that any editor did, it was passed to you. You had last go on it. It was your say on it. You know, there was there was no instance in which something went into that book that you did not want to go into that book. It's different, though, if you listen to Wendy Wolf and if you deal with Wendy Wolf's relationship with, with, with Manny Marable. There's a piece in, that was published in the Schomburg in which she talks about how everything that Manning wrote. Manning had these ideas, and Manning gave her and her, it was another co-editor that she worked with on this, and those ideas were given to her, and they would in turn feed them back they had to shape the roughness in Manning's writing. They take credit for the writing of, of this book. I mean, Manning, uh, Wendy Wolf takes credit for the writing of this book. Her co-editor takes credit for the writing of this book, for shaping Manning's stuff. You know, it's interesting you say that. critically different. And it's interesting you say that because I wanted to point out in the presentation that uh, Jared played, Wendy signs the book after that presentation. She goes and does the signing. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that's critically different. Mm-hmm. And it's documented, fortunately, by media today. So again, I just want to thank you guys and thank you for the opportunity. No, thank, to you. Say. thank you. And, and please buy the book.
Is that it? Anybody else? One more? Thanks for being here. Thanks Thank you. For informing us like this. I must admit that I was one of the people that read the book, and I kind of thought the book was well, well written. It was mm -hmm. a good read because it flowed like that. Having come here, I see that it was intentionally written that way. Mm -hmm. You know, because um, I'm a, a kind of a research-based person also, and some of the research didn't add up. Mm -hmm. You know, I was kind of left with some questions because I would have the book with me and traveling throughout town, mm -hmm. and the guys would ask me what, what I thought of the book, and I would say, look, you got to read it because I'm still trying to process this. So having heard you guys, I have to read the rebuttal. I have to mm -hmm. read the critique. Thanks a lot. No, thank you. Thank you. You know, I just, I, um, again, I, you know, and I, a good way to, I think, to wrap up uh, is that, you know, what I liked about being a part of this project is that it was a collective effort. That, and I really like what Margot Arnold keeps saying, this line she uses about the black radical collective consciousness. This what was what Paul was talking about, was offended by Marable's book. Um, but, and one of the problems that I had with the book is that it is well written. That if you, that, that's the point. If it was poorly written, if it was some night, it would have been easily to, easy to dismiss. If McDonald's french fries weren't so good, it'd be easy not to eat them. If crack wasn't good, it would be easy not to be addicted. That's the point of why these things work. And that's, that's one of the problems that we face and why we, want, we wanted a collective effort of people who actually read carefully what he was writing and who knew enough of the rest of the literature to catch what was done. And as Paul was saying, the beauty of the internet today is that you can go listen and watch Malcolm X give some of these speeches and then see how they're treated in Marable's book, see where they're truncated, see where they're cut. We try to deal with this in our book a little bit, but you can, you, can just, you can take our book as a starting point and go beyond and just see how much was reshaped. And then listen to Malcolm X's speeches and just ask yourself, really, was he really trying to get us just to vote for another Democratic president? Was he really gonna be critical of Al Qaeda and put himself in league with Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell, really, after you listen to what he just said? Is that really how we should interpret that? And then I think it starts to make more sense. But, but if you just read Marable's book and if you do it with an uncritical eye or, or, or uh, in, in, um, you know, sort of, a, a, in, not saying that you were, but an uninformed eye, you won't catch a lot of this stuff because he did a good job in the way, he cra the way they crafted it. No, I mean, I, I, no, I would say read all of them and then read all of the books written about Malcolm. Go back and get all of his speeches. Go on YouTube and re take it as a moment to revisit Malcolm, reconnect with Malcolm, because the dude was incredible. He was incredible. And again, thanks to the, oh, uh, I think we do have to, yeah, we do have to wrap up. You can, we'll continue this out here, I think, with the book signing. But thanks to the, to the library and thank to you, thanks to all of you for coming out. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.